I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. In this episode, I continue my conversation with the essayist from the book Dangerous Discourses. It's a collection of essays on feminism, gun violence, and civic life. Today, I talk with Dr. Pamela Nettleton. She wrote an essay which explores how the media covers women who resort to killing abusive partners. Today, we discuss domestic violence in a broader context, including how media outlets cover domestic violence in ways that perpetuate the cycle. We also talk about how our entire social system burdens women in domestic violence situations. So here's my conversation with Dr. Pamela Nettleton. Dr. Pamela Nettleton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So you wrote an essay, which is a part of the collection from Dangerous Discourses, and it's about media coverage and magazine coverage of women who kill their abusers. And I was reading through one of your essays and I was kind of stunned by the numbers, the numbers comparing violent crimes committed by men in comparison to violent crimes committed by women. The One of the statistics that stood out to me was that one in four women have either been beaten or killed by their partners. Is that? No, I, um, that's true. It's a really ugly statistic. And it usually gets a good gasp in a college classroom. It's hard to um, believe that, particularly if you are young enough that you haven't been out in the world for very long yet. The statistics are brutal. The CDC, National Crime Statistics, and various government and private commissions on intimate partner violence tell us, first of all, that if a woman is beaten or killed, it is almost always who she lies down next to, always boyfriend or husband. The stranger danger is not really uh, so accurate for women. If you're going to be beaten or murdered, it's going to be somebody you know. And nearly one in four women, sometimes it's one in four, sometimes it's one in three point something, are beaten or killed by an intimate partner. Beaten can be maybe a one-time occurrence or it can be a chronic pattern that escalates and results uh, too often in death. And the suspicion is that number is low because most victims of domestic violence, we guess from what domestic violence victims say, do not report it. Um, Another uh, troubling, very troubling statistic, and this drives my research, is that that intimate partner who is doing the violence is overwhelmingly likely to be male. Men commit 100% of the rapes, 92% of the physical assaults, 97% of stalking against women and against other men. Men are perpetrating 70% of the rapes, 86% of the physical assaults, 65% stalking. So what we get out of this is that we have got a culture that supports male violence and something is amiss there. Women are measurably less violent than men. I am not saying women are not violent. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not the person who did these studies. But, you know, women are more than half the population and yet commit fewer than 15% of the homicides. Right. So the the one-time occurrence that you mentioned, I mean, that that must be an anomaly. I mean, typically these situations are pretty chronic, right? I don't I don't know that that would be true. Uh, relationships are sticky wickets, yeah. and uh, there are probably uh, a number of people who might stop and think, I don't know, did I cross the line once, or was that really too much? Was that push in the kitchen? Was that, you know, firm grabbing my shoulders? Was that time that we got so mad? That, you know, that kind of thing? Sure, that might just, that might be once or twice. But I, 
I think it can be dangerous to think that it's always some other guy who looks really creepy and you can tell just by looking at him he's an abuser and nobody else is doing it. Domestic abuse, intimate partner violence happens on all uh, socioeconomic levels, all and ethnicity, sorry, um, all ages. It can be anybody. It can be anybody. So relationships are fraught with, I don't want to say peril. I want to say with situations where the emotions can run high and people can skate close to the edge of this. But I think what we know about batterers and what we know about the women they hit and why men hit is still limited. Partly because we've always been asking the wrong question. We ask, why does she stay? We don't ask, why is he hitting her? And so the slow turn of focus onto what's going on with men that makes them violent and that makes them violent toward women and what social and cultural structures are in place that let that happen. These questions really need to be asked asked more often and asked in deeper ways. And we haven't got a big body of work about that yet. Right. So that brings in the media's role in this whole picture, right? Because you write a lot about the media's coverage of women in domestic violence situations. And also one of the interesting points that you make is that the media not only reflects social and cultural values, but it shapes them, which is really scary when you're dealing with domestic violence, (laughs) right? So, I mean, it, it really is. So what is an example of the media's portrayal of domestic violence victims and how it shaped the culture? Well, I I studied this primarily in magazines. I did a study of domestic violence in general in 10 years of 10 popular magazines, five men's and five women's magazines, just over a 10-year period looking at how domestic violence discourse gets covered by men's magazines and women's. And then in this current study that I did, I looked at 20 years of magazine mentions of women who are violent. And I can tell you what we usually say about women who are domestic violence victims. Women are blamed for the violence that men do. Magazines, women's and men's magazines, blame women for choosing violent men. They shame women for remaining in homes after violence has started, which is, you know, this one is particularly distressing because what other crime is there where we hold a victim responsible for picking up and moving away from it? If you are robbed, you're supposed to pack up your belongings, change your name, get a different job and move across the country. It's it's not sensible. We should be going in there and taking the violent offender out, but we don't. We ask the woman, the victim, to please rearrange her entire life. And, you know, I understand why women don't leave. They've got children. The kids are in school. They've got a job. They have a life. Why would that be the logical response? It shouldn't be. That's a response of a woman that tells us the culture and society is not supporting her. We do not protect women and children from this sort of thing. So we do not see magazine coverage that advises men in how to not hit women. In fact, I recently just pitched a story to a men's magazine saying, how about I write you a little piece about how to not hit a woman? <laughs> um, but it's, it's completely uncommon. But all the time, women's magazines have stories about how to not get hit, how to know if he's going to hit you, which, by the way, would be impossible or maybe law enforcement would be doing that. Police do not expect themselves to have ESP about who might kill somebody someday or who might rob someone. Yet women are supposed to have magical antennae that just tell us these things. It's when you look at it, ridiculous. And the biggest effort to prevent, and I'm putting that 
in quotes, violence is that we raise money for shelters. Now, shelters are places that women and children, wonderful work, we need them, but it's a short-term fix. It's a place where women and kids can go when they need a night or two. They just have got to get out. They've got to run. That doesn't stop any man from hitting anybody. It might delay what's going on. It might really annoy him. It might put some distance between them, but that's it. That's it. There's no problem that's been solved there. Two wonderful scholars, Nancy Burns and Jackson Katz, who are eloquent on this front that we de-gender the problem. We pretend nobody's doing it. We talk about violence against women as if it just sort of happened when you walked down the street, it fell on your head. No one is doing it. We don't talk about violent men. We talk about violence against women. What a weird thing to twist it that right. way. And we gender the blame completely. It's all on the woman. She has to prevent it. She has to know if he's going to do it. She has to have a plan to escape. And if it happens, she has to be willing to completely shift her whole life, regardless of her ties to her community or family or her children or her job. It's uh, very backwards. It's astonishing when we, we look at it that way. You know, I wonder if anyone has studied or researched the professional and financial impact to women in abusive relationships. I mean, when you're either recovering or you're escaping, you know, you're moving into a new home or you're in hiding, being consistently available for work must be nearly impossible. I mean, being both physically present and mentally present. You know, also these women can't possibly be full participants in society. It makes everything harder, keeping your health checkups, keeping your children's health checkups. You know, maybe you want to join your kid's PTA, you know, voting, keeping relationships with friends. When you're in a state of either fleeing or in recovery, everything just becomes nearly impossible. Well, that's those are really excellent points, and, and that is um, certainly true. Uh, two other problems with the idea that women should flee. The first one is that when she leaves, that's when he kills her. right. That's when he stalks her and finds her and kills her. Uh, the other problem is that how does she leave if she's in a household with a controlling man who is probably monitoring and controlling a whole lot of other things? They're not always, but there tends to be kind of a little packet of behaviors that go together here. And an abuser, an abusive man, a violent man at home is often very controlling of where she goes and who comes over and if she has access to a car or all that kind of stuff, but not always. I mean, there are women who are brain surgeons who are being beaten. I'm, you know, I'm, we have to open our minds to, to that, but it's, how does she move kids in a household when he's not around? Terrifying to try to figure out how to do that. So moving is going to exacerbate whatever's already going on. And, you know, you mentioned the media, and I didn't mean to miss that. Media are, you know, the most pervasive and influential forces in our lives today. That sounds like an overstatement, but if we start to take it apart and think about where we learn most information about what happens day-to-day, -day, not only just news, but where we get our entertainment, where we converse with each other, where we get our ideas about who we are and who everybody else is. You can't take media out of that. Media are the, the conduits that all of that comes through. That's where our ideology and our ideas about who we are and who other people are, are all manufactured. And it's really important that we don't just shrug and say, oh, that's just media. Because whether we really want to be influenced by it or not, we are. We we really are. You know, it's so ubiquitous, the images of women being susceptible to violence. Look at that. Look at how popular crime television shows are. And every darn victim is a woman who did what horrible thing. She walked on the street. She crossed the lawn. She was in a parking garage. She went shopping. And, you know, and these reasons get her visited by CIS or, or you know, or 
Criminal Minds or all of those uh, sorts of programs. It just seems to be teaching us constantly that it's just really too dangerous to be on the planet and be a woman. And you look at fashion advertising or other kinds of advertising, even in women's magazines, women are violently treated. There's that whole ad campaign by Marc Jacobs where women look dead. They were in the trunks of cars and stuffed into shopping bags and lying by the side of the road. It's so common that we don't even see it until we stop and look for it. And when I do that in my classes and the students really have to see what they've been looking at and kind of not registering, it's very shocking to them. They get very upset. So media are very central to this. Yeah, sorry, I'm shocked <laughs> just listening to it. I was just stunned and I didn't have anything to say. <laughs> I'm sorry. This isn't always a really cheerful topic, is it? I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't mean to make light of it. It's, you know, all of the images that I've absorbed as a consumer of this content, I, they went through my head and it's it's really disturbing. And then those shows, you know, sadly, I think they're pretty popular with women. It, it is, and that's kind of the proper place for women socially is to be the victim. And that is, I think, one reason why looking at women who kill their abusers is such a, a rarely done thing so far that we're, we're used to the idea of women being fragile or women being the victim, but she killed him. That's kind of a shocking statement. That's just not the way that we think about gender relationships in this country. It's not the way we think about women. We just don't think of women as having the physical power or even the violent nature to do that. Yeah, so I, I guess just jumping ahead a bit, because you talk about that in your essay, Lady Killers, and about how there's really scant research around women who kill, especially women who kill their abusers. So what are some of the ways that the media portrays women who kill? I know, obviously, it's gendered, but they kind of sexualize women. So give us some examples of that. Sure. I looked at 20 years of United States and Canadian magazine articles. That's a big chunk of time for a media studies research project, but stories of women who kill are so rare that I just kept adding more and more years to it until I got kind of a fistful of stories. I looked at nearly 25 stories. You know, that's just a little over one story a year in two countries. In my other studies, I found that, you know, over a 10-year period, you might just get 100 articles about domestic violence. It's not a tremendously discussed topic. So when we talk about women who have killed, and what I studied here, I was looking for women who killed the men who abused them. There's a real specific narrative that just keeps coming up over and over again. And this is what it looks like. This is what's typical. She's characterized as being docile and baffled and definitely victimized and traumatized ahead of the murder. The story will go into great and gory detail about how she was beaten or tortured or tormented. The whole love story with this guy and then how it degraded. And I actually can notice that it's almost as if her body's being put on display. A great deal of talk almost sexualized about where her bruises were and how she was damaged by this guy and whether it included sexual mistreatment or not, that sort of thing. She will say that she feels helpless or the article will say she felt helpless until the day or night that she murders him. The articles always talk about her petite body, her lack of muscles, the fact that she doesn't look strong, that she doesn't, it doesn't look believable, that she could have done a violent thing. Often the word girlish is used. She has a girlish voice. She has a girlish figure. She has a girlish personality. The fact that she is attractive or not is always commented on what her body is like, if she's heavy, if she has an attractive figure. A lot is made out of that. Now stop and think a minute. When's the last time you read a story about a male killer where we're doing that? 
We just don't. Right. We just don't. If she's a mother, great emphasis is placed on that because culturally, I think, you know, we equate motherhood with the exact opposite of violence. And so if she's a mother, how could she be a violent person? And then the story will wrap up with her safely contained behind bars and her violent moment is over. And now she looks feminine again and has a soft little voice and wouldn't hurt anybody. So we see this portrayal of a killer as a terrified person, not as a person with any agency or acting to protect herself or her children. Very important to reinforce in these stories, her feminine aspects, she's sexualized, and then she gets contained and punished at the end. You know, I looked at, I think, 23, 24 stories Every one of them, it looks like that. So it's as if we have a narrative that we just impose on top of what happens. And and, And women are looked at as anomalies if they defend themselves. That's a really unusual thing. And it becomes kind of fetishized in these articles. There's a fascination. The writers appear to find it just remarkable that a woman would know what to do with a gun or a knife. I I do see a, a sexual objectification there. And I think that may be that sexualizing a woman is what we're used to doing socially and in media. It moves her out of the position of a predator that might be a dangerous person, and back into this familiar cultural position as the object of male attention. And I think all of that works to perpetuate the idea that women exist for men to treat as they like. We don't make women who've killed men seem very scary. I don't think men are very afraid of being physically hurt by women. And I think you may have answered this question. I was curious as to how the media, when they portray a woman who's a killer as being vulnerable or sexualizing, you know, how that carries over into the culture at large and how that feeds into men's thinking about women. Well, that's exactly why this work's important. That's what really drives me. You know, unless we start to have accurate sorts of conversations socially about what these attitudes are, we're we're never going to fix this. You know, there's kind kind of no way to do that. One way to think about that might be helpful if we think about what we don't see. What's absent in media coverage? What would be really unusual if we stumbled across it. There are no media accounts of women who characterize their choice to kill as a desperate, tragic, certainly regrettable, but seemingly necessary way to protect themselves and their children. You know, we don't hear, we don't have an account of some woman saying, you know, this guy just wouldn't stop. The police couldn't get him to stop. The restraining order didn't work. I was afraid for my kids and I made this choice. There's no women taking responsibility for their actions, claiming their own agency. I don't mean women don't. I mean, I can't find media accounts that include that. We don't see articles that hold law enforcement accountable for the abuse or the murder, but perhaps we can make an argument for that since abuse is allowed to go on. We have narratives about battered women. Even the word battered women, look at them as weak and victimized and helpless. We have set up this idea that if a man hits you, you apparently just crumple and there's nothing that can be done. And suddenly you become this victim who is inert and has no more power and no more agency. And here I'm just going to say, thank God for the Wonder Woman movie. You know, we have these moments and these increasing moments in popular culture where women are not only being physically powerful, but also outraged at the notion that they're supposed to 
sit down and be quiet. But what we end up with are these narratives about domestic violence being fixated on the victim, not the perpetrator. It gives men a hall pass, you know, and it also creates a sense that men can harm women. Men don't want to talk about it. And men certainly do care about this issue, although we don't read, we don't get stories about them. We don't get stories about men who care about this issue, but men do. They're ashamed, they're embarrassed, but they're the ones who have to fix it, I think. I, I work with, in, with domestic violence for many years, and I don't think women talking about it makes as much of an impact as men shaming and disciplining other men about it. You know, the way media cover domestic violence helps set up a culture where it looks okay for men to do it. It looks like men aren't going to get hit. It looks like men are not going to get punished. It looks like women are there being victims anyway. And if they stay around, maybe they don't mind it so much. And it's kind of normalized. And the damage that it causes, the amount of money it costs in terms of medical expenses and missed work and, you know, we could go on and on with that. That's all minimized and put to the side by the way that media covers this. It reinforces, it reifies certainly gendered and patriarchal cultural structures. It absolutely tells men, not that all men want to do this, I'm clear about that, but it conveys a message that there's a male role here that is very different than the female role. And men are not held responsible in media, not always held responsible in a courtroom. There seems to be a message that they can do with what they like, or at least what some men who are violent men like to do. That you're right. And I think one of the things that you mentioned in the essay is that women who do strike back find themselves in prison. Does that also feed into the message that women are not, you know, they may be a threat in the moment, but they're not a long-term threat. As soon as they as soon as they take out their abuser, they're locked away and society is safe again from this rabid woman. And and now she's, you know, been culled. Right. Oh, that's a good way to put it. Um I, I, you know, we can't say, we can't know how many women killers aren't caught or aren't tried. I mean, there could be women who are successful at this and it's a really creepy thing to even talk about, but there may be women who do this and are not caught. We have to admit that there'd be no way for us to know that. But what is in media coverage of this is she does it and she calls the police and reports herself or she does it and 10 minutes later she's in a cop car or she does it and the trial is imminent. There doesn't seem to be a big manhunt. She isn't on the run. That kind of stuff does not attach itself to this narrative. And what we also know is an incredibly high percentage of the women who are in prison for something, if women are in prison for murder, 90% of them were battered by the people they killed. That's who women kill. They kill the person who's beating them up. So you mentioned that one representation by the media of domestic violence is that it's terrifying to women, but amusing to men. And I couldn't wrap my head around that. What are some examples of the ways in which the media portrays domestic violence as amusing when their audience is is men? Right. Well, I'm going to point right to Esquire magazine here. They had a section about, just a whole section about violent women, and it was all jokes. It was all meant to be amusing. When your honeybee starts buzzing, 
here's what to do. You know, that, so that meaning that she's violent. The worst thing a woman could ever do is key your car or harm your tires or do some bad thing to your wheels. That's like the thing apparently men are afraid of. If you have a violent girlfriend where you should hide the knives in the kitchen. I mean, this stuff was just all strung together as kind of this smirky, funny thing that certainly some women are violent to some men, but the statistics as we have them right now, this is just infinitesimal compared to male violence against women. And male violence against women results in death. So this whole smirky attitude towards something that is very real and very disastrous in people's lives did no one any favors. I studied Maxim magazine for a 10-year chunk to just look at how this magazine that was set up lots and lots of jokes about hitting women, shoving women, women who are hit by cars. If a woman is really ugly, then you might want to run her over. If she's in your way at the ATM, you shove her out. You know, this this, this in good grief. Yeah, it did, did not put me in a good mood to be in the catacombs of a library paging through maxims for 10 years worth of issues. I got good and cranky about that. Uh, but this doesn't mean all men are like this. You know, that, that isn't my point. But in media, we use domestic violence against women and women trying to fight back as jokes. Very, very, very little coverage of domestic violence at all in magazines, which I think points to great masculine discomfort with the issue. Even among most men who would be good men who would not be wanting to do this, it's a really hard issue. I don't have a lot of male friends who want to sit down and talk to me about this. They they feel shamed and blamed, even if it's not something that they've done, and they don't quite know what to do about it. And it is a failure, I think, for good men because they feel like women should be protected. I know women, we don't always feel like we need protection, but there's that thing built in there somehow with the lads, and it's a failure to them. And there's the male rage at women thing, too, that any woman who's walked past a construction site or, you know, in, encountered this sometime, you just see this incredible, not in every man, I don't mean this in every man, I just mean that women know, and you know, we've all encountered this, where sometimes you find yourself in a situation where with you become aware that some men are really angry at at women. And even the anger can feel like a, a violent thing. Yeah. So yes, male magazines make jokes about it. Just looking at some of these headlines in men's magazines, you know, she done it, you know, six signs your angel of death may have worn high heels, girls gone postal. Yeah. So it's not a good a message. No, it, it's done in a, in a cheeky kind of a way. And I suppose not in no small part due to the fact that men don't feel threatened by women. It's kind of funny. It's sort of cute. Oh, look, she's mad. And the danger or threat that women pose to men just isn't, it, it isn't seen as a physical one. And, and that may be part of why it can be sometimes difficult to garner a lot of male empathy for how dangerous relationships can sometimes be for a woman. You know, I mean, a, a man thinks, well, I wonder if she'll go out with me. And a woman thinks, will he kill me? I mean, that that's where women have to start. They have to start with, is he dangerous? Am I safe? Right. Uh, what do I have to do here to make sure that I've got a clean getaway or I can get to my car or I can, I mean, so women make so many choices in a day to keep themselves physically safe. Men don't think about that at all. It's a really telling gender revelation when we think about the issue of violence between men and women. 
right? You know, I'm thinking back to my single days, you know, the things that, that we do, you go on a date or a blind date and you tell your girlfriends, I'll be here and text me when you get there and, you know, all the things. And men don't go through any of those hoops, right? When they go on a date because they, the assumption is that they'll be safe. And our assumption is, is that there's a good chance that we might not be safe. Uh, absolutely. Uh, sometimes it, when my students, I, I teach media studies and I we engage with these gender issues in media a lot. And when my students say, oh, you know, that was your generation. We're, we're fine now. I give them the M&M story. If it's 11 o'clock at night and you're in your dorm room and you get craving M&Ms, what do you have to do? What do you have to negotiate to go get them? And the guys say, well, you know, I have a $5 bill in my pocket and I head out the door. And women have to think about What's the neighborhood like? What time of night is it? Can I bring a friend? What am I wearing? How many blocks do I have to walk to the... And when the women start to name those things, the men in the classroom are aghast. They don't think in those complicated ways before they go out the door. They can just walk in the world. But there's a lot of the world that women can't walk in because if they get harmed, they will be blamed for having had the audacity to be there. You know, you talk about this being difficult for men to talk about, but it's difficult, I think, for lots of women who have men in their lives. And especially for me, having a son, when I have these conversations, I think, you know, there are good women out there who are raising these men. And I try every day to think about the messaging that I'm sending to him. But, you know, it's tough, right? I mean, these aren't these aren't monsters who are raising men to, you know, victimize women. I just wonder, you know, what's missing in our culture, our parenting. No, you you have put your finger on a couple of of really good points there. Certainly parenting and nurture and all of that sort of thing must come into play. But culture nurtures and our social structures nurture. And we have a lot of built-in messages about what masculine behavior is. And in this country, we equate uh, a strong masculine presence with violence. You know, we we connect masculinity with guns and physical prowess. And how many films are about the good guy being strong enough to beat up everybody? And your point about your son, if I can touch on that for a moment, I have two sons and they're grown men. They're very good men. And I love men too. I, this isn't an anti-male message at I remember the day my oldest son came home, I think in junior high. He had gone to a friend's house. She was a girl. I don't think we were in the romantic stages of anything yet. He was still pretty young. And they went in her room and they were playing some kind of a video game. And her dad came in and grabbed him and pushed him out the door of the house. And my son came home and he looked, he was just ashen. And he said to me, mom, am I dangerous? And I thought, uh, you know, a single mom at that time, I thought, geez, I didn't, I didn't think to teach him that the world is going to think he's a dangerous looking thing. I, I, I don't even know how to tell him how to move in the world when women are going to be afraid of him. I had not even conceived of that as part of the parenting message. You know, we want to raise loving, caring men. And I think the majority of men are probably that. But even those men get affected by media, whether they want to be or not. And we have a masculine cult in this country that connects being a strong man with being able to physically handle yourself and and to prove that you can do that. Well, wow, that's really powerful. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. I mean, you know, the the fear, you know, being seen as something to fear. Yeah, I, it never occurred to me. I mean, I taught in manners. And yeah. I said, I guess you're old enough now. Don't go in a girl's room. But I, but I had never thought to sit down and say, now when a woman sees you, she's going to cross the street. And that's because she thinks you might hit her, kill her, 
raper, abductor. So just keep walking. I mean, really, I just hadn't wrapped my head around these kind of pressures and expectations that are placed on men and the ways that they have to navigate that. But we have to start thinking about that and addressing that in our media as well as other other cultural and social ways, or this will never get turned around. Is part of the reason for the messaging to women, you know, the messaging to leave or to flee their abusers, is it is it due to the need for immediacy? The fact that their their lives could be at stake or their children's lives could be at stake. Or is it problematic because there isn't a counter message directed but, at men? But I don't think I, I don't think it does work because that's when he finds her and kills her. Where is she going to go? She goes to her family. He knows how to get to them. He will track her. He will find her. He will cut off her money. He will, uh, even a very self-sufficient and independent woman who has an excellent job, is going to be at that job in the morning. And we have ugly stories about workplaces being shot up and people being killed because we've got a disgruntled ex or an unhappy stalker. It is not safe to leave. It would be safe to have somebody come into the house and take the violent person away. But we just don't want to wrap our heads around that. There's an old, uh, a wonderful Golda Meir story about a rapist being active in in Jerusalem, and there was a, a meeting of the city leaders, and they were going to impose a curfew for women. And Golda Meir said, oh no, the curfew is for men. Right. Look at how we don't think like that. We do not think to hold accountable the people doing the thing. We just try to move the victim away. Go ahead and swing your fist and we'll just try to not be at the end of it. It's, it's set up to fail. Can't possibly work to, to look at the problem that way. So I want to shift a bit to from media treatment and talk about how women are treated in the legal system when they when they fight back or when they kill their their abusers. And there's battered women's syndrome. What's the history of using the defense of battered women's syndrome? Sure. Uh, sometimes called BWS. It's a capitalized thing, battered woman syndrome. It's a psychological theory that emerged in the 1970s, 1980s. And it is describing how a woman who kills her abuser or pushes back physically is thinking and behaving. And it is a, it's a legal defense as well. All 50 states allow this as a viable argument in murder trials. And it even has been applied retroactively for people who were convicted before this was widely accepted. So the, the way it works is it recognizes the fact that women fight back differently than do many men. When you're roughly evenly matched physically as men might be, fighting back at the, in the moment, that's what self-defense looks like. If you're physically outstripped, fighting back at the moment of attack can get you killed and is unlikely to stop the violence. So women wait until he's drunk or asleep or otherwise incapacitated, and they attack when they are less likely to die trying. And battered woman syndrome says, this is not revenge. This is still strategic self-defense, but it's controversial. It positions the woman who's killing as being temporarily mentally ill, which in a certain, from a certain perspective, kind of robs her of her righteous agency here. You know, 
self-defense is accepted in a courtroom. We don't have to prove that we're mentally ill. Someone's trying to kill me and I had to protect myself. Uh, some opponents to this say it, it allows women to get away with criminal behavior. Opponents say, no, 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 this is what self-defense looks like if you're a woman. But I, I do think the bottom line here is that this defense really shows us that our existing social systems are just not adequate in interrupting and preventing domestic violence. And it still positions women, again, as not not acting from a position of power. So I want to ask you a bit about the women's movement that we're in right now. There's lots of energy right now around women, you know, following the 2016 election and the Women's March. And do you think that we're in a position right now to pressure the media to have better messaging around women in relation to domestic violence in the same way that people are starting to think about messaging around women politicians? Oh, I think so. I think maybe this will be the piece of social justice work that Harvey Weinstein does in his life. The the (laughs) Me Too hashtag certainly give me some encouragement because it brings into public conversation how common all manner of gender discrimination and also uh, sexual exploitation. Man after man has been surprised by it. In fact, I've gotten a little cranky about the number of men on Facebook who feel the need to mansplain to um, women that, you know, men sometimes are harassed too. And I don't know, mansplaining to me is at some very gateway level <laughs> uh, sort of uh, entry to being a real jerk. You just want to stop right there and turn around and go home, I think. Um, you know, when we take care of one group in society, it really doesn't mean that nobody else has pain. No one's saying that. Men have pain too. Absolutely. Life is tough for men as well. Yes. And yet, if a woman is going to have a traumatic injury or be killed, it's going to be a man. It's going to be the man who says he loves her. That's a fact. And that's hard to look at. And something's really rotten at the core of that. And we have to grow up and be responsible and attend to it. Right. Well, thank thank goodness for the word mansplaining. I was thinking about that the other day. <laughs> so glad that someone introduced that into our <laughs> vernacular, right? We need that. We do need that. It's useful. In the early days of the second wave women's movement, there was a thing called a Ms. Clunk where we would catch ourselves saying something <laughs> sexist and go, whoa, I didn't even, you know, wow. And so I think mansplaining is great. It's kind of gentle, but you can use that word and a, and a good guy will go, ah, oh, geez, I did, didn't I? You know, I didn't mean to do that. And they, it's just, it's in these little micro adjustments where I think we're going to be able to turn a really important corner. And the more light shown on this, the more we talk and just say out loud that sometimes men in a position of power can abuse it in ways that are really harmful to women. And let's just look at it. Let's out that. Let's get out there how often this stuff happens. It's not rare. It is not rare. It is not rare. That alone gives me a lot of hope that we're just talking about that, that we're recognizing that. Well, Dr. Pamela Nettleton, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been a really great conversation and really important for me. Oh, well, thank you. It's, uh, It's something that I think it's really important all of us talk about. So thanks for airing this.